live from Liverpool, the Dark Paranormal, Season 6. Hi everyone and welcome back to the season finale of The Dark Paranormal Season 6. This season really does seem to have flown by and I can't believe we're already at our finale. However, we're going to sign off Season 6 with the most requested case from you, the listener. It is one of the most harrowing accounts of alleged demonic possession that's ever been documented. And it's definitely a case where you ask the question, exactly who are the demonic ones in this story? However, before we dive into this season's finale, I need to give a quick thank you to our wonderful Patreons. When you sign up to Patreon, not only do you support the show, but you also get these episodes ad-free and before anyone else. Not only that, but you can also receive access to the entire back catalogue of the Patreon-only podcast, Dark Bites. On Dark Bites, we take a look at some of the stories that for one reason or another we couldn't bring across to the main show. And those episodes are released each and every week to our Patreons. Meaning, as we're about to take a few weeks break before the start of Season 7 of The Dark Paranormal, our Patreons still receive a weekly paranormal podcast. We've built a wonderful community of like-minded paranormal enthusiasts over on Patreon, and we'd like to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. Just like these wonderful new team members have. Linda Van Larnen, Sylvia Ramirez, Noura, Ben Simpson Aram, Claire Briggs, Miss Joe, Mal Mal Cole, Julie Bowden, Brittany Martinez, Rianne, Taylor Miller, Gregory Aquilo, Kelly Tripkovich, Amanda West, Abigail Marks, Jessica Nose, Jose Gonzalez, Jason Jorgensen, Fiona Boychuk, Jack Beasley, Maria Veltson, Laura Kerridge, Charlie, Bethany Grace Woodward, Nisha Rodriguez, Kevin Honeycutt and Dave Jackson. Thank you so much guys, I hope you enjoy the upcoming Dark Bites to see you through to the start of Season 7 of The Dark Paranormal. And of course, you'll be the first to hear the premiere episode of Season 7. So why not join the Dark Paranormal team? Head over to patreon.com forward slash the Dark Paranormal. And now it's time to look at the case that we're going to sign off Season 6 with. It's the most requested case of all season. And it's one that's been covered in both paranormal podcasts and true crime, and rightly so. I feel like there needs to be a series of disclaimers about this upcoming episode. It's also a topic which will cause differences of opinion, be that down to your religious beliefs or your knowledge of the case. However, this is a paranormal podcast and we're going to look at the case from a paranormal angle. So please bear that in mind as you listen. As you are aware, we do like to try and cause an atmosphere when we create these episodes and we will put in sound effects or background music. On occasion in this episode, however, we will be using snippets of the actual audio from the exorcism that took place. I say that as a trigger warning that this episode may not be for everyone. And if that's the case for you, then we look forward to seeing you for the start of Season 7 when we revert to listener stories. But for everyone else, lower the lights, make yourself comfortable, and for the final time this season, leave your disbelief at the door as we 
hear about the case of Annalise Mikkel. I see devil faces in the walls. They have seven crowns and seven thorns. There, that's how it's done, said Anna Mikkel, the matriarch of the Mikkel family, after straightening her daughter Annalise's hair ribbon. She stood back and gave the four children and her husband Joseph one final inspection. Excellent, now we can go, she smiled. The Sunday morning walk to the parish church of Klingenberg was one of Annalise's favourite times of the week. The walk always felt special, like her own mini-pilgrimage. This weekly trek to the place she felt most at peace and at one with herself and her God. The experience of living as a youth in Klingenberg in the 1970s was very much dictated by the outlook of your parents. Parents of German teenagers at that time were of an age where they'd witnessed or even fought in the heinous conflict of World War II. And in Annalise's case... This had resulted in a strict religious upbringing from her Roman Catholic mother, Anna, and her former prisoner of war father, Joseph. On reflection, to call Annalise's mother strict may be understating it. The girls were forbidden from talking to the opposite sex. They had to present themselves for approval prior to leaving the house. Should an item of clothing not meet their parents' requirements, the girls were sent to change. Or, on occasion, Anna would lay out the clothes that they were to wear. The one saving grace was that this oppressive parenting never got physical. However, here, Annalise felt safe. Here, in the confines of her church, she was in the one place where there was an authority higher than that of her parents. An authority she knew they feared. She had no idea, though, that her parents' fear of that authority would, within years, play a part in her own death. Annalise McKell, unless you want to stand up and address the whole classroom, can I ask you to stop talking to your friends, please? Annalise chuckled and apologised to the teacher. The teacher smiled back and shook her head. Annalise was an excellent student, and she loved school. Her teachers all thought she was a bright, likeable girl, and her little circle of friends were like a safety blanket and a therapy group all in one. Her friend, who she'd been whispering with, turned, smiled, and gave her a wink. But Annalise stared back blankly, expressionless. Her friend thought maybe she'd missed something, and... Anna fell to the floor and started violently convulsing. The teacher ran over, moving any items that may harm her out of the way, until, slowly, her seizure stopped. Her eyes opened, but she was non-reactive. Her body was malleable enough to sit back in her chair, and the teacher fanned her with a book and sent a child for some water. All the while, Annalise stared straight ahead. After a few minutes, she came around, shocked by the amount of people now surrounding her desk. Her classmates soon filled her in on what happened, and although she recalled none of it, 
she put it down to simply being overtired. The teacher had called for the school nurse, who arrived whilst Annalise was well into recovery. With the child now apparently fine, the nurse advised her to visit the doctor should it happen again. And, with the classroom drama over, the class resumed. That evening, Annalise's bravado about her seizure had well and truly fallen away, and she was unable to sleep. Laying in bed, anxiously wondering exactly what was wrong with her. Maybe she was just overtired. Or maybe there was something seriously wrong with her. Her thoughts bounced back and forth, so much so she decided she would turn her bedside light on to read for a while. She lent... No, she didn't. She tried to, but she couldn't move. A slow but forceful pressure began pressing her shoulders into the bed. Then the weight expanded to her chest, pushing the air out of her lungs. She was totally paralysed. This is it, she thought. I'm going to die. (gasps) Suddenly the weight dissipated and the young Annalise gasped for air. She hunched her knees to her chest and remained awake for the rest of the evening. For the following year, Annalise resumed her normal life, the seizure and sleep paralysis almost fully erased from her memory. Annalise turned 17, never an easy age for anyone, as the journey from adolescence to adulthood leads you directly into clashes with parents, usually not too eager to release their protective grip. With parents like Annalise's, this was tenfold. As if I'm not going to talk to boys in college, Annalise confided to her friend. I think they think I'll stop going to church, go off the rails. But I like church. I like... Annalise furrowed her eyebrows, whilst every facial muscle below her eyes seemed unresponsive. She leant in towards her friend, staring intently. An... Annalise? muttered her concerned friend. Annalise dropped to the floor and once again had a violent seizure. That evening, Annalise was filled with anxiety. It had been a full year since her last episode, but it wasn't the seizure that bothered her. She could never remember it anyway. No, it was the pinning to the bed which she hoped wouldn't repeat itself now. However, something in her knew, could feel, that it was getting both shoulders pressed deep into the mattress. She tried to breathe in order to scream, but her chest was far too compressed. Again, she was about to reach the point of blacking out when (gasps) the heavy mass lifted from her. Once more, Annalise hugged herself into a ball and stayed awake until morning. Following an appointment with their family doctor, Dr. Vought, he referred Annalise on for some brain function tests with a neurologist named Dr. Luthi. Annalise sat silently next to her mother, Anna, both of them waiting for the doctor to finish reading whatever was on his clipboard. All fine, said the doctor, removing his glasses and placing them in his top pocket. There is no obvious damage to the brain function that we can see. Annalise looked at her mother, then spoke to the doctor. But what about the seizures? 
Oh, I don't doubt they happened. It may well be a mild form of epilepsy. See, occasionally the brain can, well, misfire, so to speak. But as there's been a year between episodes, we wouldn't look to medicate at this time. Let's just monitor the situation and... So you're doing nothing then? interjected Annalise's mother. No, on the contrary, I'm saying we need to monitor to get a better idea of what we're dealing with, that's all, smiled the doctor. Annalise's mother just nodded and motioned for her daughter to follow her to the door. We'll just pray for you, said Anna as she held the main door open for her daughter. This was Annalise's mother's go-to for everything. If she lost her keys, she prayed. If the weather was bad, she prayed. Even if Annalise verbally disagreed with her mother, she would loudly pray over the top of Annalise's voice to drown her out. However, it would appear that her mother's prayers would fall on deaf ears, as over the following year, Annalise's health declined at an unnatural speed. Tonsillitis led to pleurisy, which then led to pneumonia. Unable to go to school for a period of weeks, Annalise's recovery relied on the care and daily prayers of her mother, Anna. On the 28th of February, 1970, the family doctor arrived and decided it would be best for Annalise to be taken into the adolescent ward of the local hospital, where further tests revealed she had issues with her heart and circulation, and it was deemed a lengthy stay was required. There was a slight problem, though. Being unable to attend school and dealing with the illnesses in general had affected Annalise's mental state, to the point she felt almost socially inept. And here she was, being placed on a ward with a gang of teenagers. It wasn't long until her silence was preyed upon as a weakness, and the other patients began taunting her. Snot-nose, they would snigger to each other as Annalise passed. Things weren't helped by an event one evening on the 3rd of June, 1970. Annalise was awoken in the darkness of the night by the oppressive force once more pushing her deep into the mattress. This time, however, she managed to take a breath before the weight moved to her chest. All the patients sat up in their beds and the staff nurses came charging onto the ward, turning on the lights as they entered. Of course, by the time they reached Annalise, the episode had passed and the nurses all put it down to a nightmare. For the other patients, though, they now had some new ammunition for Annalise and began telling her she was possessed. Feeling isolated and alone, Annalise turned deeper into her faith, gaining permission to use the staff area for her daily prayers. On one particular day, Annalise was halfway through her rosary prayers when... (laughs) she noticed the air suddenly had a sweet scent, like jasmine. Opening her eyes and looking around, everywhere seemed to have an extra radiance to it, and she felt a calmness and serenity that was so peaceful, she was sure it must have come from the divine. Yes, that was it. To her at least, this was the Blessed Virgin Mary, proving to her that she was chosen. In the days and weeks that followed, Annalise attempted as best she could to regain that euphoric experience. 
she would kneel in exactly the same spot, try and hold her hands in the exact same way. But she grew more and more frustrated as the experience refused to repeat itself. Noticing how upset this was making her one day, one of the nurses who had befriended Annalise asked her what was wrong. Annalise quietly told her of the encounter with the Virgin Mary and how she was desperately trying to reach out to her again. Smiling, Annalise told the nurse she wasn't worried, however, as Our Lady must be busy helping others more in need than myself. But this didn't stop her from trying on a daily basis. Please, Blessed Mary, please come back to me, Anna whispered. Her eyes scrunched into a ball, praying with all her might. (laughs) A foul smell wafted past Annalise's nose. Opening her eyes and trying to locate the source, she noticed a dark spot on the wall, which hadn't been there before. She focused on it, and it seemed to be growing larger. And then took the form of a hideous face, sunken eyes, sharpened teeth, seemingly smiling at her. Annalise jumped to her feet. Annalise, are you okay? Dr. Van Haller had entered the room. The smell seemed to disappear, and Annalise shot a glance back to the now blank white wall. No, doctor. No, doctor, I'm not. Dr. Van Haller tried to calm Annalise and explain that hallucinations often went hand-in-hand with epilepsy patients. And that's what this, and also her angelic experience, were all about. Nothing more than that. Annalise nodded, but there was no way she would believe anything other than she'd been visited by the Blessed Virgin Mary. By the 29th of August, 1970, Annalise's physical health had recovered to such a point that she was released from hospital. However, her mental state was not in an equally good place. Returning home also meant returning to school, and in the week leading up to her first day back, Annalise seemed to be returning more to her usual self. Unfortunately, her first day back didn't go as she planned. Her illnesses seen her put a year behind all of her schoolmates in order to try and catch up. This left the vulnerable Annalise not only without a support network, but also singled her out as a point of ridicule, being the eldest by a year in her class. Within a few days, Annalise dipped into a deep depression. But, unlike her previous malaises, this was coupled with a visceral anger. The seizures and trances were also back with a vengeance, and therefore Dr. Luthi changed her medication to a powerful anticonvulsant. Returning from the doctors, Annalise was sat in the kitchen, sipping a cup of tea and thinking how she could get some normality back into her life. When a foul stench entered the kitchen, it smelt like burnt fecal matter. The smell was so overpowering it made her wretch. Her sister Barbara skipped into the kitchen. Why are you coughing? She asked Annalise. Annalise was shocked. Can't you smell that awful smell? Barbara sniffed the air. (laughs) No, what smell? In the living room, Annalise's mother was folding the laundry. 
and watched as Barbara headed out of sight towards the kitchen table, where Annalise was. Anna saw a blur fly past the frame of the kitchen doorway, and, running in, found Barbara slumped unconscious against the far side wall. Looking over to Annalise, her face was completely emotionless as she stared at her mother and said, It smells of burnt shit. There seemed to be two states of being forming within Annalise. One where she was rational, slightly anxious, but polite and seemingly in control. And one where she was literally not herself. Even when Annalise was in her calm state, the faces in the walls, in reflections, even in brickwork, seemed to be appearing more frequently, jutting out on her when she would least expect it. And so she returned to Dr. Luthi. Annalise explained how the hallucinations were getting out of hand, how she was not feeling herself. But the seizures have stopped, yes? said Dr. Luthi, dismissing out of hand the other symptoms Annalise was experiencing. Annalise paused. Yes, but doctor, I see the devil's faces in the walls. They have seven crowns and seven thorns. Dr. Luthi just nodded. Hallucinations are part and parcel of this. He shrugged. The seizures are the most important thing to control. A chorus of voices whispered in Annalise's ear. She jumped up. The walls, the floor, the ceiling all seemed to be reverberating with hundreds of knocks all at once. She held her head in her hands and cried out until her mother burst into the room and held her. I heard the knocking, Joe, Anna said to her husband that evening. They say it's in her head, but I heard it. Something awful's happening to our little girl. That night, Anna and Joseph McKell decided they needed, quite literally, some divine inspiration, and so arranged to take Anna to the village of San Damiano in Italy. In recent years, the village had become a holy pilgrimage for some Catholics, following a vision of the Blessed Virgin Mary appearing to a poor peasant woman. In 1961, Mama Rosa was walking to the local church. When the air started to smell sweet, like jasmine, she felt a euphoric feeling coming over her when the Virgin Mary appeared and stated to her that, similar to the predictions about Jesus, she, the Virgin Mary, would also have a second coming. The vision became so widely known that Rosa was given a private audience with the Pope to discuss the messages from the Virgin Mary. The day before they left for Italy, Annalise's mother walked into the living room to continue packing their suitcases when she noticed Annalise stood in the corner of the room facing a shelf which held a statue of the Virgin Mary. A deep breathy growl was emanating from her back as if an animal was stood behind Annalise looking outwards to the room keeping watch. Annalise? Her mother called gently. Annalise did not move. Her mother walked slowly around her to try and see her face. Annalise spun her head round and glared at her mother. Her eyes were jet black. Her face contorted into multiple aggressive lines. Drool was dripping from the right side of her mouth to the floor.
San Damiano was beautiful. Busy, but beautiful nonetheless. Annalise seemed in relatively good spirits as she and her parents took a brisk walk through the town. I hear the crucifix in the church is a work of art, said Annalise. It depicts God on the cross, as opposed to the dying Jesus. Well, I can't wait to see it, replied Joseph, giving a smile to his wife due to this outgoing communication from their daughter. As they passed the souvenir store, Joseph quickly disappeared and returned with something in his hand. Close your eyes, honey, he said to Annalise. Smiling, she did so. Joseph looped the small Virgin Mary pendant around her neck. Annalise dropped to the floor. Get it off, get it off, it's crushing me, she screamed. People around crossed themselves whilst Joseph and Anna scrambled to remove the pendant. In September 1973, her mother arranged for another visit to Dr. Luthi. Her delusions were now reaching fever pitch, and the trances, well, the trances seemed to be becoming more dangerous. Dangerous for Annalise and for everyone around her. So, Annalise, began Dr. Luthi, we know the seizures seem to be under control, but I hear you're still having hallucinations, and they're getting worse. Is that correct? Annalise shook her head. They're not hallucinations. I have the devil inside of me. A judgment of fire will be brought down on you all, she said calmly. Dr. Luthi smiled and nodded slowly, for an awkward amount of time. He didn't know what to say, or what to do. Psychologists had found her of sound mind. The tests had been done, repeatedly. The medication prescribed, repeatedly. Against his better judgment, he took Annalise's parents to one side and suggested they seek help from the church. Father Habiger and Father Roth came to the McKell house to carry out a series of interviews with Annalise and her parents. On this particular day, however, Annalise was in good form, so much so that the senior priest of the two, Father Habiger, stated there were no obvious signs of possession and instead referred the parents back to the family doctor. Father Roth, however, was not as convinced as his senior colleague, and as they left, he pretended to have forgot something and returned to the kitchen, where Annalise was sat on her own. Annalise, he said, fumbling with something in his bag. I'm going to put some things on the table. Can you tell me if you feel anything? Annalise just nodded. The priest placed a vial of water down on the table. Annalise, however, was staring at the satchel. The priest removed a second identical vial of water and placed it next to the first. Annalise's eyes glazed over. Her breath became deep and raspy. The priest backed away. Do these bottles differ in any way? He asked. As quick as a flash, Annalise jumped up, grabbed the second bottle and threw it at the priest's face. He cowered with his hands up, but the bottle was frozen in midair. He then watched on in disbelief as the bottle floated to the floor as if it were a leaf. The first bottle contained tap water. The second contained holy water from San Damiano.
Despite describing this feat to his colleague, Father Haberger was still determined the case was medical instead of spiritual and refused to assist any further. Unhappy with this outcome, the family reached out to a Father Herman, who met with Annalise on ten separate occasions. But he also found no evidence of possession, no revulsion of religious objects, no rappings or knockings like had been reported, and he also referred her back to the doctor. Following his experience with Annalise, Father Roth couldn't get the poor girl out of his mind, and he contacted a sympathetic priest by the name of Father Alt. Father Alt arrived at the Mikkel house and rung the doorbell. A dishevelled Anna Mikkel opened the door. Come in, Father, she said, stepping to the side. Father Alt smiled. How big is your dog? I do hope he's friendly, he joked. Anna looked him in the eye. We don't have a dog, Father. That noise was Annalise. Anna led the priest through into the kitchen. Under the table was a partially dressed Annalise on all fours, baring her teeth and growling like an animal. A brief description of what he'd witnessed was all that was required to be granted permission to begin the prayers of exorcism. This is not a full exorcism, it's more a test to see what reaction will be invoked, and therefore it's permitted semi-regularly and with less evidence required to do so. For his second meeting with Annalise, Joseph opened the door and led the priest upstairs. Entering the front bedroom, he found Annalise's mother sobbing whilst holding her daughter's hand. Meanwhile, Annalise was uttering prayers in Latin and genuflecting to her knees in sharp, visceral drops. Her knees were raw and bloody, as every few words she dropped onto them on the hard wooden floor. She's been doing this for five hours, said Joseph. We can't get her to stop. Father Alt began reading the prayers of exorcism. Annalise continued to violently genuflect. However, each time she rose, she tried to grab the prayer book from the priest's hands, getting more and more frustrated each time. Over the next few weeks, Father Alt would witness Annalise howl like an animal, eat insects from the floor, go into a trance and urinate, and then get on all fours and lick away at the urine. She would vomit at the production of religious items and burn up if she ever came into contact with them. It didn't take much convincing for the bishop to grant permission for the full Roman ritual to be carried out. On September the 24th, 1975, the first exorcism took place. Father Alt and Father Renz, plus Annalise's parents, were all in the room. First, Father Alt gave opening prayers and sprinkled holy water onto Annalise. She writhed uncontrollably and shouted, Put away that shit! The exorcisms continued... And as you will know, knowing the names of the possessing demons is allegedly pivotal to the exorcist's success. Annalise divulged the names of her inhabitants. Lucifer, Judas, Cain, Nero, Fleischmann, Hitler. Of the six, only one was non-human, that being Lucifer. 
In moments of clarity in between the sessions, Annalise said that when the demons were in control, she is pushed outside of her body and watches everything unfold. The toll of these horrific exorcisms on the young Annalise is telling. She was physically and mentally wasting away. She'd also started a regime of self-harm, head-butting walls, breaking her teeth by trying to bite through hard objects, and on one occasion, ramming her own head through a glass window. In moments of lucidity, she would claim, I will be rid of the demons by July. The last series of exorcism began on the 13th of June, 1976. By this point, she had stopped eating and drinking. Her frame was just skin and bone. Blinded by the belief they were helping Annalise rid herself of the demons, no one realised it was way past the time to take the poor girl to hospital. Her face was battered, bruised and swollen. Her body emancipated. And at 8am on the 1st of July 1976... Annalise McKell, aged 23, was found dead. She had repeatedly stated she would be free of the demons by July. In her post-mortem, starvation and dehydration were found to be the cause of death. And after a year of trials, both the priests and her parents were charged with negligent homicide. During the trial... When asked why they didn't take Annalise to hospital when she clearly needed it, her sister replied, What good would a doctor have done? Demonic possession isn't treated like a broken bone. And there we leave season six, with a reminder that sometimes humans can be just as dangerous and evil as the demonic and that doing wrong for what you believe to be the right reasons is never the right thing to do. And so we're at the end of Season 6. Thank you so much for your support this season. We take our standard two-week break and return with Season 7 on the 27th of May. We've now finalised all of our episodes for Season 7, all listener stories, all truly terrifying. And remember... To get early access to that season premiere and to continue to get weekly paranormal podcasts courtesy of Dark Bites, the only thing you need to do is sign up to become a member of our Patreon team. Head over to patreon.com forward slash the dark paranormal. For everyone else, I'll speak to you again for the launch of season seven, Listener Stories, on Friday the 27th of May. But between now and then, remember, When you're discussing the paranormal, always try and leave your disbelief at the door. And I'll see you next time for Season 7 of The Dark Paranormal.
Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.